0: Morning, brothers and sisters. Oh. Please turn to me to Matthew, with me to Matthew chapter 16. And stand. Stand with me. I'm going to read once again from 13 to 20 today so we get the context of what we're talking about. As we've pointed out over and over, the, the picture that comes most firmly into my mind is that. Through these chapters, we have had Jesus Christ revealed to the disciples. But in this particular confession of faith, we have that dimmer switch, so to speak, turned up so that we see the clearest exposition of who Jesus Christ is in this book so far, I believe. Now, we will read. We're going to be focusing on verse 16b today as we went through verses 13-16a. through last week, so please read the Word of God with me, sent for us, infallible, revealing the Gospel to our hearts. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, note that word, that word, Son of Man is, they say, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Simon answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He is the Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, I come before Your people that You bought with Your own blood with with much trepidation this morning as we think about the Holy Trinity as we think about Jesus Christ becoming man in the hypostatic union, Lord, I am not sufficient for these things, but God, I believe that You have sent Your Spirit, that You have spirated, You've breathed out Your Spirit to the church that we might, we might find in Your Word sufficiency today. I, I do pray, God, that You would preach to our hearts, that we would see the Gospel and how far You came to save weak, wounded, sinful sinners like us. Lord, please, God, I pray you would be with us today in our weakness, that you might show your strength. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. And while some of you were not with us last week, I I would point you to last week's sermon, if you're able to see it on sermon audio, listen to it, as we went through what it means that Jesus is the Christ. But I want us to be reminded. In verses 13 and 14 of our text today, that we should see that confessing Jesus Christ accurately is of the utmost importance to our eternal souls and salvation. I'm not saying we need to understand these things perfectly. I'm not saying that we need to be able to articulate them perfectly, but this is not something we can shove aside as something of an unimportant matter. It's not enough to think of Jesus Christ highly. You remember these people. They exalted Christ. That He was like Jeremiah, Elijah, or John the Baptist. He is like one of the greatest prophets that this world has ever seen. But that is not enough. We must confess much more of Jesus Christ And what we must confess is Peter's confession. Jesus shows and proves that Peter's confession is the accurate one. The blessed confession that all in the church must give. And last week, again, we saw that we must confess that Jesus is the Christ. That is the perfect anointed mediator, prophet, priest, and king, who brings us to heaven on His own, through His own work. And today, we, know, we must confess not only that He is the perfect mediator, we must confess His relationship to the Father. We must confess who He is in His very being before the existence of the world, in the world, and after He ascended into heaven. We must confess that Jesus Christ is, from His incarnation to eternity, the Son of the living God, and before eternity, the eternal begotten Son of God. Now, when we enter in to the doctrine of the Trinity, it's a terrifying thing for me to preach on. Not only because of my own personal inadequacy, but because of the precision by which we must speak of the Trinity. This is not something we may take flippantly. I'm going to quote just quickly from Augustine. I sent this to Brother Caleb and Joey this week. He said, with the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, nowhere is erring more dangerous, seeking more toilsome, and finding more fruitful. Okay, How little we think about the doctrine of the Trinity in our modern churches, but we must think about it, and today we're confronted with it. Now, one more thing I want to say by way of introduction. When we think about it, we have all these doctrinal formulations of the Trinity that have been traditionally handed down to us, okay? We are not to think that these doctrines are to explain in detail what the Trinity is like. Rather, and this might be a new way of you to think about it, the confessions and the creeds are given to guard the mystery of what the Trinity is, okay? In our rational minds, we want to peer behind the curtain. We want to see God naked, so to speak, as the reformer said. We want to see Him in His substance that would make sense to our rational mind. But as we will see, God is incomprehensible. And these doctrines of the Trinity given to us, instead of trying to explain in detail what God is, they're guarding us from entering into error on the right or the left. And that's what we're going to be careful, try to be careful to do today. If I'm sticking more to my notes today than normal, that is the reason. I pray that the Lord would would bless us thinking about this very broadly. And hoping that it will even stir in our hearts a desire to learn more about the doctrine of the Trinity. That we might glory God in it. Central idea of our text today again, is that Peter confesses Jesus' true identity and Jesus assures Peter of the truth and the importance of that confession. So, three things today. To rightly confess Christ, we must confess that Jesus is God. Very God of very God. We must confess that Jesus is God incarnate. And we must confess that these two elements are essential for our salvation. Essential. No other way could man be saved than God coming down and taking the person of a man and saving us by His own work and power. So first, we must confess that Jesus is God. We must confess that Jesus is God. As we thought about last week, the perfect mediator, prophet, priest, and king, we come to verse 16b, and instead of reading over it as we often do, I think that it is on us that we must consider the Trinity. Confronted with the doctrine of the Trinity and how we must understand this. Peter here, he puts together as the person of Christ, he says, you're the Christ you are the son of the living God. And I want us to see in 1 John 2:23 that these ideas are connected as well. Please turn with me there. Now, we turned to 1 John 2:23 last week as we tried to see the weight the weight of confessing that Jesus is the Christ. You might recall that. In verse 23 of 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> John says, Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies, notice, Father and Son. Not only in Peter's confession are these ideas connected, but in John's confession it's connected. Notice verse 23 no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. Also, John connects these two ideas together, but more explicit, what I want us to see today is the weight, again, attached to the proper confession of who Jesus Christ is. Not only must we confess Jesus to be the Christ, to be assured of our eternal salvation, to know we're Christian, we must confess that He is the Son of God. Essential confession of Christianity is that Jesus is the Christ, again, the Son of the living God. But if you're in 1 John, please turn with me to chapter 5. This text is even more explicitly weighty to our eternal salvation of what we must confess. Notice 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Listen to the weight that John puts on Jesus being the Son of God. If we receive... The testimony of men. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life in this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Do You see what He's saying there? That in the Gospel record, in the apostolic testimony here, we have the very witness of God. He has come down. He's testified who His Son is. And if we deny that through our rationalism, that it doesn't make logical sense to us how there can be one substance in three persons... We're denying the testimony that God has made concerning His own Son. And we can have no assurance of our personal eternal salvation. And we can have no assurance of anybody that would name the name of Christ that doesn't confess these things. The Word of God hymns us in on this and makes it very clear. And so, it, it behooves us, doesn't it? If that's the weight that the New Testament and especially the Apostle John puts on right confession of Christ as the Son of the living God, we must ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? This surely is not just a magical incantation that we have to say. But it has real truth and real meaning attached to it. First, oh, this is is frightening to speak of, but it's true. It means that Jesus is of one substance with the Father and the Spirit. Now, I know that these words, they rack our brains a little bit, but I am not so bold as to create new theological words for this, okay? I'm not that wise. I'm using historical language that is being used. Now, when Peter in this text confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. We might, and rightly so, question well, what did Peter understand when he made this confession? Did he understand the Nicene formula that he is one substance with the Father, but a distinction in the persons or the subsistences within the Trinity? Maybe. Maybe not. But what I want us to realize is that this confession, rather than been taking on its own with its context limited, we should see that this confession is a seed planted in the ground that grows and flourishes and bears flowers and fruit throughout the apostolic witness in the New Testament. Okay, It it grows from this. Just as we saw last week that the Christ, it means maybe much more than Peter thought in his own puny mind. So, the Son of the living God means probably much more than Peter even thought. Now, Whatever we might think of what Peter thought, I believe that he meant more than he was just a man called the Son of God with that label attached to Him. And the reason I think this is because the unbelieving Jews thought that Jesus meant more than this when He said this. Matthew chapter 26, in the very book that we're in, Jesus Christ, when He's on trial, this very confession is the death knell That sends him to the cross. Matthew 26 and verses 63 through 66. Read. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Notice the phrase, not accidental. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore their robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What witness do we need? You have heard His blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. He deserves death. And maybe the prime text that I'll just read to you is John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God. I would say to you, assuredly, that if the unbelieving Jews that thought this was a demon-possessed man speaking to them and doing these miracles, I think Peter understood that there's a little more going on here than just a title attached to a human man. This man was God. And the Jewish leaders were right. Jesus is equal with God. And again, as as our creeds say that we should be familiar with, He's not just God, He is very God of very God. Alright? Arius would say, without any hesitation, Jesus is God. But he would mean something different by that when he said it. He had a category and classification of, in his mind that Jesus was somehow a lesser deity, but we can call him God. The Athanasian and Nicene Creed came to know he's very God. A very God. Very God. A very God. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is not less than the Father, not less than the Spirit. That Jesus is God in every way that the Father is God. Now, think about this apostolic witness with me. And you can turn with me if you'd like. I'm going to turn quickly. John chapter 1 is this key text that we all know or that we should know in our hearts. John chapter 1 As John begins this great gospel to tell us who Jesus Christ is, he does not start on the earth as the other reform- or the other disciples did, rather He speaks before the creation of the world, doesn't he? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This monotheist John, growing up in Judaism, he says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As a side note, we should be thinking how the 4th century Trinitarian theologians thought of, and I know this is a lot of information, can God be God if He is separated from His very Word that He speaks? We'd say no. It's intrinsic to His being. The Word. Can God be God with His wisdom taken away from Him? Well, Jesus is the wisdom of God. It's intrinsic to His very being. We see here that John is writing that the Word was God. The Word was God. Now, I'm going to take you through a couple different texts. Romans chapter 9. And the reason we're going here, I'm trying to have three witnesses from the New Testament that speak, I think, the clearest. Romans chapter 9. Notice the shocking words that the Apostle Paul ascribes to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. To them, that is the Jewish people, according to the flesh, to them... Belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Notice, who is what? God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Yeah, almost as a side note, isn't it? He is God over all Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go back to 1 John 5, which we're going to do a couple times. 1 John 5:20. Again, the apostolic witness that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. No different. No distinction made in His substance that He shares of divinity. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal Life. He is the true God and eternal life. And this this truth in the apostolic mind that Jesus is very God of very God, not lesser in any way, is so clear that Paul could say in Acts 20.28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care of the church of God which He obtained, God obtained, with His own blood. He is true God. Peter confesses, the apostles confess, and the church confess from Nicaea onward that he is very God of very God. And again, what that means, if we're to try to expand our minds over the vastness of this topic, that in every and any conceivable way, any attribute that we attribute to God alone, Jesus is that. Jesus is that in His divine nature. Okay? Is God the Father omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent? And so is Jesus Christ. Our Savior, to bring it down to the level and make it go into our hearts. This isn't just academic. The One who came and died on the cross for you. Your Savior who prays for you in heaven now is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. More than that, Jesus is self-existent, needing nothing in His divine nature outside of Himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need the world. He's self-existent, incomprehensible, unchangeable, immense, eternal. He is God without qualification. He is one substance with the Father. He is consubstantial with the Father. Now, this is clear witness of scripture, clear testimony of the church, but we also must confess that Jesus as the son of God is distinct from the father and the spirit. Okay? Now, the creeds that we confess is that Jesus the the whole trinity is one substance and essence of God. With three persons, and if that word throws you off, which I understand, three subsistences. Okay? Those are difficult words, and I'm not choosing other ones. Okay? You can wrestle with them yourself. In 381, the Council of Nicaea has confessed this, and we confess it with the apostles. Now, incomprehensibly, this is an important word, incomprehensibly, each person or subsistence has the whole divine essence in themselves, yet the essence is undivided. Okay? Incomprehensible. That's the key word here. If you're trying to put this together and figure out how this might be true, you must say, this isn't trying to detail what this looks like. It's trying to guard the mystery. Okay? By saying what we know to be true. They are distinguished, and I want you to listen to this, They're distinguished by their personal relations to one another alone. Okay? So as we think God, as God is in Himself, in the Trinity, and we think, well, if they share the same God nature, what makes them distinct from one another? The church has confessed throughout history that the only thing that makes them different in the Trinity itself, not how they work in creation, but in the Trinity itself, is how they share their relationship to one another. Okay? I know that this is a lot to go through. Now, what that means is this. How is the Father distinct from the Son and the Spirit? The Father is distinct only in that He eternally begets the Son and eternally spirates, breathes out the Spirit. And that's why they have those names. They are eternally Father, Son, and Spirit because they eternally have this relationship with one another. Okay? How is the Son different? The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. He eternally has that relationship with the Father. And Jesus eternally as well, spirates, breathes out the Spirit. How is the Spirit related? Well, you might guess. He is eternally breathed out by the Father and the Son. And if this is new to you, I understand that. But this is one of the most ancient doctrines that has been agreed upon by the whole church since 381. Okay? Okay? Now, the main idea, if your head is spinning, which I get, I've been reading on this all week and I felt like I was going crazy half the time. My brain was a donut half the time. Okay, If your head's spinning, that's good because it's incomprehensible. But the main idea that we must take away, that we have to take away to confess Christ rightly is that Jesus in His eternal nature has every attribute and characteristic that makes God, God. But we must hold and confess that He is distinguishable from the other members of the Trinity because of the eternal relationship that they have together. Okay? We must confess this. This is not optional in our Christianity. And it is without dispute that the apostles view Jesus as God and yet distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Now, we we know this, don't we? This is the easier point to prove, I believe, we see John 1 that we've already read, that Jesus was not only God, the Word was God, but the Word was with God. It portrays us that there's a relationship in heaven prior to the world being made. We see it Jesus' baptism. We see these three persons or subsistences. Jesus, the Son coming out of the water, the Spirit being sent, and the Father's voice from heaven speaking. Oh, but one of the things that clearly comes to my mind and maybe to yours is the language that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. The wonderful text, and there's a reason why it's on signs everywhere you go. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only, and I believe a better translation, only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have Eternal life. And and these texts, these ideas, they seem very academic and very heady, but this is not given to the church, and I'm not preaching it here today so that me or you can have doctrinal snobbery over our fellow Christian. Okay? We have this. So that we would glory and wonder at our salvation. Because what I want us to see is this. The incomprehensible Trinity. The incomprehensible Son eternally and incomprehensible begotten by the Father. Yet distinct. He came down to this earth and became incarnate for you and for your salvation. That should blow our minds. That should cause us to sing out almost involuntarily the doxology here. This God who needs nothing saved us anyway. We must confess that Jesus is not only God, not only distinct from the Father and the Spirit, we must confess that Jesus is God incarnate in flesh. This God came down and joined himself to a human nature, and we're not done with the doctrine, the deep doctrine here. Jesus did not come, and God. Mixed his nature with a man's, okay? He didn't come and make Hercules, okay, that's half God and half man, or 99% God and 1% man. The careful language of the confessions, the second person of the Trinity joined to himself a man's nature, both in his body and a rational soul. He was fully man, not just in his flesh. He wasn't just a fleshly robot inhabited by the Holy Spirit. He had a truly reasonable soul. So much that he could say on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Okay? He had a rational soul. The second person of the Trinity added to himself this human nature. He is very God and very man. Very God and very man or as Jesus asks in our text who do people say the son of God is or who does people say the son of man is rather Peter says the son of the living God he is two natures gloriously joined together in one blessed person okay he's human in every way okay we've talked about him being God in every way he's human in every way how do we know that Because He suffered. And our God is impassable. He was hungry and thirsty. When He had the cross on His back and He was going to Golgotha, He stumbled on the way. When He was walking in John chapter 4 to go through Samaria, do you ever notice that He slumped by the well? The other disciples didn't slump by the well. They, in their physical constitution... We're able to carry on and go into the town, but Jesus Christ, our Savior, imbued with human weakness and true humanity, he slumped by the well. We read in Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and knowledge before God and men. This is important to our doctrines, isn't it? Hebrews 2 is a wonderful text that we should have just. Tattooed on our minds when we think of Jesus Christ as man. Hebrews 2:17 tells us this. Therefore, notice the language: He had, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the Son of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. Jesus Christ must be God. But He must be man. And we don't have qualification with these things. He's fully God and fully man. And this is the reason the great confession that that Peter announced and it grew in the apostolic witness. This is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3 that this confession is true and they added to it a bit here. Notice... He says in verse 15, if I delay, he wants Timothy to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, God, in some, some uh, manuscripts, God was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up into glory. What a wonderful statement that is. He was manifested in the flesh. This is the mystery of godliness. Now, this man, Jesus Christ, that came and joined to Himself a human nature perfectly, God and man, He continues in this hypostatic union eternally. Not before He took His human nature upon Himself. Hear me rightly. But He came down, joined to Himself this human flesh and spirit, and He lives in heaven forever as man and God. Never to be changed. Never to be separated. The Son will never cease to have this human nature. Forever in heaven, as our representative is the second Adam. It would be a terrifying thing for us. I think. To think that Jesus died on the cross as a man, and now He is divested of His human body. Why is that? Because we need a representative in heaven right now. I need somebody to plead the blood of Jesus Christ to the Father that I might receive the blessings of the new covenant. We need Jesus to plead that all the elect will be saved in time and space history. We have a representative now and forever in heaven. Now and forever in heaven, and forever, we will have a mediator forever, we will have a husband, a brother, a friend and God. forever. And our eyes will see him one day, in the same way in which he was taken up into heaven. In Acts chapter one, he said, the same way that I'll come down in bodily form, bodily form. And what a, I just had to add this text, and I hope it fits. How wonderful is it? to read Matthew 123 with this all this information in mind behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means god with us god with us nothing less than god with us now lastly today we must confess that this these doctrines are essential for our salvation and i don't mean to believe in them as essential which it is what i mean it was necessary. This is the only way that we could be saved, is by God becoming man. The only way to save us from our sins was for God to intervene. And we know this, brothers and sisters, if we think about the law of God as perfectly portrayed to us, that we could never live perfectly before God. Never. And the law was not given on Mount Sinai in order for us to do so. It was in order to teach us that we could not do it. For Galatians 3, quoting from Deuteronomy, says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, listen to this strong language, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The law comes to us and it can't just be obeyed in part. Cursed is the one who doesn't do everything perfectly that's written in the book of the law. That person is cursed. And that is to weigh upon our hearts that we are hopeless and we're without any kind, any kind of help apart from Christ. We could not ever live perfectly before Him and we could never pay the debt that we owed previously. Even if I could, and I can't. Never. Not for a second. Love my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never could I love my neighbor as myself. Even if I could for a second, and then I died. I've got all this sin behind me to deal with. And the terrifying thing is I've offended, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, I've offended the supreme majesty in heaven. And therefore, owed to me is the supreme judgment and punishment for my sins. Eternal death and misery for one sin Not even for one sin. For the sin I inherited from Adam and Eve. Man is hopeless and doomed if God Himself does not intervene. We need our mediator to be true man and true God. We need Him to be. Now, I'm going to take this a little out of order, but this is connected to the Christ, Him being prophet, priest, and king. We need first a perfect priest. We need a perfect priest. He has to be God and man because He has to represent both parties. He has to. We we are two parties that have irreconcilable differences. God is supremely holy and can have no sin in His presence. Nor can He condone or allow for any sin to enter into His heaven. And man is totally sinful. Corrupt in mind and heart, that we are totally and wholly inclined to do all evil and to be absent of all good. So, what's the hope that we have? We have a priest who is God and man. He represents both parties so much so that God could entrust with the person of Christ our redemption and salvation. That he was sent down, he died to satisfy God's justice. He sent His Spirit to regenerate us and make us new and cleanse our record so that these two irreconcilable parties are brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. He bears our name on His heart and His shoulder pieces before the Father forever just as the Old Testament priests did. He has to be fully man. He has to be fully man. The same nature that offended God Must be the nature that offers satisfaction. Must be. He must be sinless and righteous. Therefore, he cannot be born of man naturally because we inherit the guilt of our fathers. He has to be fully God. He has to be able to go to that cross and bear the full weight of our sin without eternally sinking down into hell. This is only possible. Through this hypostatic unit, it's only possible that Jesus is very God and very man put together. We need a perfect prophet that is God and man. We need a prophet who perfectly reveals who the Father is, that is the exact representation of His image. We do not have to guess what the invisible God wants from us, what His desire for us is, what His duty He requires of us, because Jesus perfectly knows the Father and tells us about Him. And as King, we have a King that's truly omniscient, truly omnipotent, and truly omnipresent. He is is forever our King that works all things for our good for those who love Him. Now, I ask you simply, as we asked last week, is this your confession? Do you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? And as you hear these things in your mind, we know that these are hard doctrines to understand. I understand that. I am ill-equipped to speak on these things, I would even dare say. We're talking about the incomprehensible nature of God. Okay? But that what is revealed in Scripture. Now, this is the question I have for you. Do you buck against this? Do you have the, the knee-jerk attitude in your heart that God has to make Himself comprehensible to my own mind? That if I can't comprehend it, if I can't rationalize it, it can't be true. Oh, brother and sister, I, I, you need to repent and know that you're a creature, that you're not meant to know what God hasn't revealed. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine tells us that what has been revealed belongs to us and our children, but the secret things bego- belong to God and God alone. It's not for us to try to peer behind the curtain and try to see what God is like. We have to believe what He's revealed to us. We have to guard the mystery. But today, if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'd ask you today, do you believe that that person mediates for you? Not only do you believe it's true, do you have that reflex of faith, that reflexive action that says, He not only died, He's not only God, He's God and man for me, and He died for me. If you believe that, brothers and sisters, you have much hope, and if you don't believe it, it is open freely to anybody that hears these words today that the gospel of Jesus Christ has come down and there could be no more perfect way to save man. It's open to all. Come and kiss the sun and rejoice with trembling because salvation has been sent to you. But if you reject it, if you reject it, what more is left? What else can be done? What else can be done for sinners like us? He gave us such a Savior to save people as sinful as us that we might assuredly go to heaven. We must rejoice at these truths, brothers and sisters. And I hope that as much information as there's been, I I pray that it would spur us to think more about who He is and to glory glory in what He's done for us. So, in, in brief conclusion... We must confess what Peter confesses. That's clear from our text. Jesus gives approval and says it's the blessing that we have. We must confess He's the Christ. We must confess that He is the Son of the living God. And what that means. So we must confess that He is one substance with the Father. Indistinguishable except by the relation that He has with the Father and the Spirit. He's distinct, but He is God of God. We must confess He is fully man. Forever. He is fully man and fully God forever for us and for our salvation. And we must have it impressed upon our consciences that this must have been done to save sinners like us. No amount of bulls and goats' bloods could ever cleanse the sin of a single sinner. But Jesus Christ's blood can cleanse the sins of the whole world. He's able to do it. We needed it. Amen. Brother Joey, would you come up?